Take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 7. We actually finished out chapter 6 last week, and now we're in chapter 7. Also, just to mention to you that we have the little journals, the Matthew Gospel journals, and uh, we want you to use those. So if you don't have one, you can go to the back and get one and just follow along and write your own notes as God speaks to you. Here Jesus moves to another idea in the Sermon on the Mount. The last chapter we studied, he dealt with themes connected with the inner spiritual life. He talked to us about attitudes in giving, attitudes in prayer, attitudes in fasting. He talked about materialism and anxiety over material things, that we worry about the food we're going to eat, the clothing we're going to wear, where we're going to sleep. And Jesus dealt with all of that. And he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those things will be added unto you. Now, in chapter 7, he teaches on an important theme related to the way we think of and treat others. This is a very practical theological teaching. I'm, I'm going to teach. I don't want to preach as much as teach it, because I think it's something that every one of us could use we need a brush up, if, 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 so to speak, where we really think about how we think of others and how we treat others. So verse 1 starts this way, judge not that you not be judged. Now this is the words of Christ and he's trying to encourage us to understand what is a right judgment from a wrong judgment. How many of you have heard someone say, don't you know the Bible that says judge not lest you be judged? Meaning... You should never judge. How many of you have heard that? Okay, that's not true. They, people who say that do not know their Bible. Because in this one chapter, Jesus addresses right judgments and wrong judgments. Okay, the Greek word translated judge here is the Greek word krino, K-R-I-N-O. It means to, to judge to the degree of condemnation or to the level of of condemnation. Jesus says, don't judge with a condemning spirit or a condemning attitude, okay? You'll never amount to anything. You ever heard someone say that? Maybe you've said that. Or how about this? It's even worse. I hope you die and go to blankety blank. That's a condemning judgment. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't make condemning judgments. What is behind? What is behind a condemning judgment? I'll tell you what it is. You're not going to like this, but this is what you and I are like. It's hypocrisy. It's self-righteousness. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, we already studied, Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here Jesus is rebuking self-righteousness. He's rebuking the hypocrisy that's in our lives. He, he wants us to understand that those things, hypocrisy and self-righteousness, it produces fruit, but it's a bad fruit. It's not something that should be becoming of a believer. Some people think that, they, that the way uh, to be more righteous is to be more judgmental of others. And they, some people think that being judgmental or critical of others, they think that's a spiritual gift. And they function in that gift very well. 
But what you're doing is you are actually speaking more about your self-righteousness and your own hypocrisy. And Jesus, in this chapter, lays it out, or I should say, fillets us out. Not all judgments are condemned by Christ, however. I want us to understand that. Some judgments are needed. Write these verses down. These are examples where Christ tells us to judge, that it's okay to judge, okay? John chapter 7, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So there he's telling us there is a right judgment that we can give. Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Watch out. Be discerning. Judge between those who are accurate and those who are inaccurate. You have a right, biblically speaking, to pay attention to people and pay attention to their fruit so that you're not led into false teaching, erroneous teaching. How about this one? Even in our own chapter, chapter 7, verse 15, in the same chapter that Jesus said, judge not and you won't be judged, he then says, verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Here it is. You will recognize them by their fruits. We are to discriminate. I know that word has taken a big time hit in the political correctness spectrum. People look down upon all types of discrimination. Jesus said we should discriminate. You should measure closely what people are saying and what they're doing. You should be able to recognize a wolf from a, one who is a sheep. Don't be fooled by wolves who dress like a sheep. Be discerning enough, be discriminatory enough that you understand the difference. If I can put it in practical terms for you, I talked about this Thursday night at the Bible study in Revelation. How many of you leave your front door of your house wide open all the time? Raise your hand if you always leave your door open. Look around. No hands up. You're all discriminating. You're discriminating. You're not just letting anything and anyone come into your house. You are discriminating. Many of you have a peephole in your door, and you look through it. Why? Because you're discriminating. You're trying to be discerning of what is good to allow in and what is bad to keep out. That's what Jesus is referring to here. When we judge, we judge rightly. We judge with right judgments to discern. Now, I'll, I'll take you further in this. Here's, just listen. There is a need to judge among believers. And let me tell you in what area. Not to the level or to the area of condemnation, okay? Jesus teaches that there's a righteous kind of judgment. What is it? A right judgment is for identification and for resolution, for restoration. So when we judge, we don't judge to condemn, to throw somebody on the scrap heap. We judge to identify. We judge to restore Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. Write it down. Leviticus 19, 17. 
You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Don't hate your brother. Love him by confronting him in his sin. That's a right judgment. You're not judging that person because you want to take them down and make them feel like a piece of dirt. You are judging them so that they might see the error of their way and you can help them find restoration in Christ. See the difference? A whole different way of judgment. So when we see someone who's in sin, we lovingly say to them, because I care about you, I want you to know that I believe you're heading in the wrong direction. And they're liable to say, the Bible says don't judge. And you can say back, you don't know the Bible. If that's what you think the Bible says, it also says for us to love one another enough to be honest for the purpose of restoring that brother or sister to Christ. So that's a very important distinction that Jesus makes early in this chapter. This is practical theology. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. This is one you want to memorize. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, in other words, they break a law, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, there's the word, in a spirit of gentleness. Restoration is never harsh. Restoration is never impatient. It's, it's gentle, it's kind. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's kind. I've got a grandson, Gabriel, and they live in Chicago, outside of Chicago in Wheaton, and they were visiting earlier this spring, and we were playing, the boys, Gabriel and Easton, and they were playing like they were dinosaurs, going around the house, you know, scaring the girls, the little sisters and stuff. And so they came by me, you know, and, and running by. And so one time I just jumped up. And the, they, whoa! And they took off running and I chased after them and we had fun. After we were done, Gabriel, who's like, I don't know, four, three years old, four years old, he, he comes to me, Pop, the next time we play dinosaurs, can you be kind? <laughs> And so I went to his dad, uh, and I, I said, Graham, I said, Gabriel told me the next time I need to be kind. He goes, oh, I'm impressed. He said, I taught him the difference between being nice and being kind. Interesting. Christ was kind. He was gentle. We never restore to hurt. If you, if you have hurt in your heart, you're probably going to let that hurt come. It's going to fall out and hit somebody else. Make sure that you've recovered yourself. You're restoring yourself with Christ before you go and restore them. Amen? Amen? So how do I know if I'm a condemning person? How do I know if I'm condemning someone? If you're unwilling to carry a judgment to the point of restoring them, you're probably condemning. If you're going to judge, you better make sure you're willing to restore. Anything short of that, Jesus says, stay away from it. No condemnations. I want you to think about this, church. Because in our daily relationships with one another, in our family relationships, in our husband-spouse relationships, 
in all types of relationships, we can easily get on the condemning side of judgment. We say, say things we shouldn't say. There is a right judgment. And that doesn't mean that when you give a right judgment with a right heart, that the person's going to receive it as you gave it. They might bow up against you. It's okay. If you did it with a right heart, and you did it with the right purpose to restore them, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You just walk away. In fact, we'll cover that here in just a moment as well. Verse 2, let's move on. Uh, let me say this last thing about, about uh, having a right heart. In John 13, we have the picture of Christ who goes into the upper room and sees his disciples who were seated for the Last Supper. And I'm sure he noticed that they had dirty feet. What you did not hear Jesus say at that point was to point at them and go, guys, fellas, come on. You, look, you got stinky feet in here. Come on, you're making a mess. It's not what he said. What he did after the meal was he got up and he took a towel and wrapped it around his waist, and then he got down on his knees, and he washed his disciples' feet. If you're not willing to wash a person's dirty feet, don't point out that they have dirty feet. Verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the manner in which I judge is the way I'll be judged. On the surface, that sounds like God is going to judge my sins by how I'm willing to judge other people's sins. That would be untrue. That's not what this passage is referring to. See, if you're a believer, God has already judged all your sins through Jesus Christ on the cross. So he's not referring to judging your sins. This is a reference to people judging you. Look at the verse. It doesn't say God. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Measured by who? By the people that you judge. If you're tender-hearted and kind in your judgment of people for the purpose of restoration, praise God, many times they'll come right back with the right spirit towards you. But if you are harsh in your condemnation to them and you're critical of people, don't be surprised when people are critical towards you. Jesus takes this further, but that's a very important point that we need to see. Remember in our study in the book of Judges in chapter 1, the men of Judah said to the men of Simeon, there's a camp of Canaanites over in that valley. Let's go over. We can take them. We can certainly take them out. And then they went, they took them, and then they captured the king of the Canaanites. They brought him back. And guess what they did? They remember this? They chopped off his thumbs and his big toes. <laughs> and you think, that's weird. Why would God's people chop off thumbs and big toes? Well, that king actually tells why. If you look further down in the text, in chapter 1, verse 7, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, that king said. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So there's something in that for us. How we treat others, the heart behind the treatment, 
Am I here to restore them or am I here to condemn them? How we treat others is how we can expect others to treat us. Uh, look at verse 3, if you will. Why do you seek the speck? Jesus continues, the same theme here. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrites. See, that's what's behind our judgments, wrong judgments, self-righteousness and hypocrisy. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Another reason why Jesus didn't make a condemning or critical statement to his disciples about their dirty feet was because he too had dirty feet when he entered the upper room. If we can keep that in mind, I'm not perfect. I have my own mess. Then all of a sudden we treat others differently when we see their mess. But isn't it interesting how we always see other people's messes more clearly than we see our own? That's, that's the nature of your flesh. The flesh is always filled with self-righteousness. It's got to be somebody else's fault. Look what they did. Look what, I can't believe they did that. Generally, when you find somebody who's on some kind of a rant about something in someone or a rant about people, if you look deep enough, that same sin is in their own life. And we just don't see it. And so Jesus addresses this, and, and it's very fascinating to me. Notice in the passage, when Jesus spoke of the speck, or you could call it a splinter, and then he speaks of a log, okay? This, whether it's a speck or whether it's a log, it's all from the same material. It's just different in size. You're no different than them. Only difference is, Jesus points out, that material in your eye is a lot bigger than in their eye. Keep that in mind. It changes how you think about people and it changes how you treat people. When you know that I am a sinner, the worst of all sinners. If you can see the truth, the fact that you were destined for hell, it didn't matter all the good things you did. You're a sinner. You were born into sin through Adam and you committed sin and you continue to commit sin. But thank God Jesus paid the price for your sin on the cross. He didn't cover some of your sins. He covered all your sins. Listen to me. Please hear me. Those of you who are not saved, He covered your past, your present, and your future sins, but you have to receive Him by grace through faith. But the th fact is, Christian, if Christ covered all my sin, and my sin is grievous, and my sin is great, if I think about that, how can I possibly hold somebody else in contempt over their sin. It changes how we approach people, doesn't it? Maybe it changes how we approach our spouse. Because when you live with somebody, man, you see all the mess, don't you? Before you get married, you're like octopus. You can't get close enough and your arms, your legs are all wrapped around each other. I know that because years ago I did a lot of Christian counseling, marital counseling, and they would come in and sit down, and I mean, they, they'd take the two chairs that I had this far apart, and they'd pull them together and sit there. Uh, <laughs> why do you want to marry him? Oh, he's wonderful. <laughs> Sir, do you have a job? Nope. 
ma'am, are you sure that he's wonderful? Oh, yes, he's wonderful. Six months after they're married, the guy squeezes the toothpaste from the wrong end. He leaves his underwear laying around the bedroom. He doesn't make the bed. He doesn't help with the dishes. And I mean, the list is long. And all of a sudden, it's easy to stay in his backyard because his mess is right there in front of you and not see your own mess, that there is hair all over the sink. <laughs> all right, that's as far as I'm going. I'm not going any... I'm a smart man. I'm not a dumb man, okay? So... <laughs> But we, we do. We, we, we see it in others. We don't necessarily see it in ourselves. And Jesus, our Savior, in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, this is what he makes a beeline to. Wrong judgments. And then he's also telling us there are right judgments, but you've got to do it with the right reason. It's an interesting one. In the Old Testament, David was the king and Nathan, the prophet, came to him and said, David, we have a problem in the kingdom. And David's ears perked up. And Nathan told him about a rich man who owned many sheep, many herds. And he was going to have a guest visit his home. And so he went over to the poor man's house and he saw the little tiny flock of sheep that he had. And he found the one little ewe lamb that this man had that was like a pet to his kids and he stole it out of the flock. He took it home, he butchered it, and he prepared it for his guest. David, what should we do? David's response was, that man needs to die for what he did. Put him to death. By the way, the law of Moses at that time, which would have been in place, did not call for the death sentence for that. David went beyond the death sentence because he saw such a grievous sin committed against a poor man. Nathan looked at him and said, David, you are that man. You have concubines, you have wives that you're not supposed to have, but you have them. And yet, you went after a man who's on the front line fighting for you and you took his wife for yourself. You are the man. David is no different than us. We can easily see it in others. We don't see it in ourselves. That's why we need to pay attention to the Word of God every day, studying it, knowing it, listening to the Spirit of God as He directs and guides us away from sin, towards, towards being conformed to the image of Christ. Very important that we see this. I love David's prayer in Psalm 51, verse 10. David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So David recognized the error of his way. By the way, when David was confronted by Nathan, and Nathan said, you're the man, the first words out of David's mouth was, I have sinned against the Lord. He handled that well. He confessed his sin immediately. Then in verse 13, because first he says, Lord, create in me a clean heart, and renew a right spirit within me. Then three verses later, he said, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. When I have a good picture of my own sinfulness and I'm thankful 
that you've forgiven me, then I will be right in my judgments and I'll teach people so that they return to you. See how that falls in place? Stop doing so much talking about others. Stop doing so much teaching of others and criticizing others. Criticize yourself. Let the Spirit of God reveal the sin in your heart. Ask forgiveness for that. And then teach others the things that you've learned about God, how He'll forgive. You'll do it with a different purpose and a different attitude. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. As you approach people to help them see the error of their way, to help them recognize where they've stumbled into sin, and you do it with a right heart, not everybody will receive it. They'll turn from you. And so Jesus is basically just saying, look, if people aren't going to receive because God's created you to minister to them, but Satan wants to distract you in that effort. He's going to have them be negative back towards you. Then you walk. You just don't keep trying to come back and show them something that they're not willing to see at this time. Don't condemn them. Don't say, well, they'll never get it. Don't ever say that. God can change anybody. So you always hold out hope that they'll change. But in that moment, they're not ready. So Shake the dust off your feet and pray for them. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. So you can certainly pray for those that you love that have rejected the truth. It's okay. Pray for them. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In your relationships with others, as you're trying to help people and as you're trying to walk the right way, you're going to need wisdom. You go to God for that wisdom. And you ask God. You seek him. And God will give to you. He's not going to give you a, a stone when you're asking for bread. He's going to give you what you request. God's a faithful God. Just write it down, if you will. But in James, uh, the book of James, chapter 1, verse 5, that's a great verse that you can memorize and that you can study. But if you, if you, if you need wisdom, ask God who gives to all liberally and it braideth not. God will never withhold from you wisdom if you truly seek him for the answer. Now listen, don't come to God with already thinking, I know what I need. I'm just hoping God will agree with me. And if he doesn't, I'm going to put him in the corner and, 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 and let him see the, the true picture so he can agree. Um, God already has the true picture. You're part of the problem. You're not the solution. So when you go to God, you don't come with this idea, I know what's right, I know what God needs to do, I just need to convince Him to do it. That's why the Bible tells me to ask, seek, and knock, and keep on doing it. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you come with an open heart before God because there's probably things you're not seeing. Here you are focused on somebody else's backyard, and your backyard is a complete, utter mess. And Jesus is trying to give you wisdom. The wisdom that he's saying is, it's, it's not about them. It's about you that I want to talk to. And so when we come to people that are like that, and they just aren't willing to listen, 
Shake the dust off your feet, but go to the Father before you go to them and seek wisdom. Let God speak to you. Let's also understand that God doesn't want us to keep asking, seeking, and knocking because he's playing some kind of a hide-and-seek game with us, okay? He's not holding a dog biscuit over me going, sit, Greg, sit. That's not what God does with us. We're his children, and he treats us like children. He's determined to cultivate a relationship within my heart that will grow me so that I'm more conformed to Christ. So when I come to him with things, he's not wanting to give me little pat answers that I'll like to hear. Sometimes God tells me what I need to hear, and that's not what I want to hear. And if you reject those times when you go to God, then why would God open up to you? The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of God is against those who do evil. If you're set in your ways and you're coming for God to affirm what you want to do when it's not really what you should do, God closes his ears to you. He's not interested in that. Verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets are summed up in the golden rule. If you look at verses 1 through 11 that we've already studied, you find that the golden rule here in verse 12 is the summation. It's just the conclusion. It's, it's, this is it. If you want to put all 11 verses in one sentence, there it is right there, verse 12. Now our Lord moves into a subject that is very controversial today, and I want to cover it quickly. Verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter, it, uh, enter by it are many. So there's several words there. First of all, narrow, that the right gate to enter into salvation is through a narrow gate. And then secondly, the wide gate leads to destruction. And then he also says that the narrow gate is hard. It's not an easy way. It's a hard way. And the wide gate is an easy way. And, and, and those who enter through the narrow gate are few. This is Jesus giving a prophecy. This is foretelling in the end when God returns. Listen, very few will get in. I didn't come up with that. Jesus said many will go to hell. Many. He said many will, lead, will go to the path that leads to destruction. He's saying only a few will get into heaven. When you compare all of mankind, the population of mankind through the ages, few go to heaven in comparison. That ought to sober us a little bit. As a teenager growing up in Daytona, one of the things that I loved to do was go dipping for shrimp. We'd go to Government Cut, which is down by the lighthouse between New Smyrna and Daytona. And government cut was these channels that the government cut through these islands, and they were winding and whatever, and, and uh, uh, fascinating because they actually uh, hold a lot of fish. And when I was a teenager, we'd get in our boat and go down there, me and my buddies, and we would love to go out at night. We'd wait till nighttime, and we would go find a cut in the river, a narrow cut where the river would come down and it would narrowly go around a bend, and we would set up on that narrow cut. We'd put our lights out down on the water, 
And it was always, it looked, when you'd see the right spot, you knew it because the water was calm around that turn, on that bend. Water was calm. The reason it was calm was because the water was a lot deeper right there. And so on the surface, it was calm. But underneath, it was a strong current around that, around that bend. And the predator fish would sit off the edge of that, that uh, cut, and as the shrimp would come down deep, they would just, just attack them. They would take them. So what the shrimp would do to avoid the predators on that turn, they would come to the surface. They'd come up to the surface, and we'd be waiting on them with our nets. And we could fill up two, three gallon uh, of shrimp, you know, in one evening on the water. Then we'd go back and we would, uh, we'd fry them up and have a breakfast on the, uh, you know, you had a little island camp. We'd have a breakfast there. And then we'd go to sleep and wake up around one o'clock when the low tide was, whatever the low tide was. And we'd go to the sandbars and we'd look for keyholes. We'd find the knife, stick it down in, find a keyhole clam, pull clams up, go back and have clams for dinner. What a life. <laughs> and then my mom and dad are here. I'd come home smelling to high heaven after three or four days of that. They wouldn't even let us in the house to take a shower. Outside with a hose and a, piece, and a, and a bar of soap, okay, before you come in. But man, what fun. But here's the point that I want to make. It's interesting how easy it is to take the path that looks smooth and not realize that below the surface it is a deadly current with predators waiting to attack you. Some of you might not be saved. And you're thinking, man, I got life figured out and I'm going to go down life the way I want and I'm going to do it my way. And you're looking for the easy way. And you're looking at the places that look like fun and this will be perfect and not realize that the enemy is waiting upon you and he's going to pounce like a lion on you. And what you want to do in life is see that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins so that you could then trust him and follow him through the, the cuts and the bends of, of the river of life. You, you want to go with him and you want to make sure that god leads you in a way that while he'll never lead you down an easy path that's not god's way see some people they think if i get saved then life will really get easy how many christians here would say that's true it's life's easy no it becomes harder it's harder to be a christian than it is to be a sinner but the fact is you're not alone in it god's with you and your life means something now. It counts for something. If you just live for yourself and live for sin, listen, at the end of your life, you have nothing to show for it. At the end of a Christian's life, you have a life well lived, but you also have an eternity to live. It's a whole different ballgame. So enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now Jesus is saying, He just established that the way to life is narrow, and it's hard. The way that looks wide and open and easy, that's the way to destruction. And what leads people, listen, by the way, 
it doesn't say a sign that hangs there and says, okay, this narrow way is to heaven, this wide way is to hell. No, no. Both ways, people think, lead to heaven. Nobody thinks there's a way to hell. And guess what? What makes the wide so dangerous is the wolves hang out. If they can get you on that path, that path of easy, then the wolves attack and Jesus deals directly with it. In Acts 20, Paul said the same thing to the elders at Ephesus. When I leave, men will rise up and draw disciples to themselves. He called such men ravenous wolves, just like Jesus does in our text. How are we going to recognize a ravenous wolf? First, wolves will draw men after themselves instead of pointing people to Jesus. If you ever sit under the teaching of somebody who's always making it about them and always bringing you to them, they don't point you to Jesus, that's a wolf. Get out of there. People, this is the danger of pastors who have great personalities, strong woo factor. And many do. And I'm not saying it's evil. Woo is not evil. Charismatic personality is not evil at all. It can be good. But how they use it can either attract people to them or to Jesus. And so stay away from any teacher who brings attention to himself. Secondly, here's how you know it's a wolf. 2 Peter 2.3 says that the ravenous wolves will go after your pocketbooks. They're much more interested in fleecing you than they are feeding you. Stay away from those who it's always about the money. It's not about the money. It's about the soul being fed. The greatest job of a shepherd is two things, to lovingly feed and lovingly protect the sheep. That's it. Nothing in that about money. Money will follow good shepherds that lovingly feed and lovingly protect. A good shepherd doesn't worry about the money. A good shepherd focuses on the sheep. But when you have someone who's constantly coming with money issues and wanting more and, oh, God wants to bless you, and you got to give to this and that and whatever, and we need you, oh, watch out. That is not from the Lord. I'm not saying that there aren't times where you have to come together collectively as a body to raise funds for a special cause that God is leading the church in. That's different. But when it's always about money, be careful. So how do you know the difference? You use discernment and you pay attention to the fruit. Look at verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? No. Or figs from thistles? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's useless. Thus, you will recognize them, ravenous wolves, by their fruits. There it is again, another judgment, discernment. Use discernment, discriminate. He's telling us that we need to be very wise to these things. Seek God for wisdom before you fall into the trap of some ravenous wolf. So we're not looking, by the way, for flawless fruit, right? Because you're not flawless, right? None of us are flawless. But we are looking for a pattern of healthy fruit in someone's life that points to Jesus. That's not about money. It's not about nickels and noses. It's, it's about 
shepherding, caring, loving, sharing the gospel. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, now Jesus speaks about those who are inside the church, but are not his children. Wolves in the church. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? By the way, these people who are speaking to the Lord are not lying. There's no way they would stand before the Lord and say, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many miracles in and be lying. They, they wouldn't do that. They actually did these things. And listen, it says they did them in his name. Yet they are wolves. Why? Because Jesus is not the only one who has power to do miracles and signs and wonders. Satan also has power to do those things. And he does use those things. And so we have to be careful. If you remember, Simon the sorcerer did miracles, but not in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Moses' day, Pharaoh and his, his magicians, they copied to a certain extent the, the very uh, miracles that God was performing. So just because somebody... That's why you don't follow signs and wonders today. Why would you need to follow signs and wonders when you have this? Signs and wonders could be of the Lord, but it can also be of the devil. If that's what you've made as your discernment is signs and wonders, whether, okay, I know that this place is spirit-filled because they have signs and wonders. You do, you do know that in the tribulation, in the end, that Satan is going to perform through the, the false prophet many signs and wonders, and many will be led astray because of that. So don't think for a second that that's how you discern. You discern by the Word of God. You discern by the Holy Spirit giving you illumination to the Word, and then you check things by the Word of God. That's how you know to check somebody's fruit, by the Word of God, not by signs and wonders. Here Jesus says, hey, I, what are you talking about? Listen to this, verse 22, "...on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, cast out demons, do many miracles?" What was Jesus' response? "...I never knew you." Wow! Talk about the ultimate rejection. These people were doing things in the church in the name of Jesus. And he says to them, I never knew you. You weren't doing that in my name. You were doing it for show, for attention. You were being led of Satan to do those things. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine. So Jesus summarizes he sums up the entire Sermon on the Mount. Look what he says. Everyone who hears all these things I've said from chapter 5 to chapter 7, that's what Jesus, that's his sermon. You hear these words of mine and do them, and do them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears, verse 26 hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat that house, and it fell. And look what it says, and great was its fall. Notice, 
Both men built their house the same way. It wasn't about the house. It wasn't about the part that you could see. It was all the same. It was about the part beneath the house that you could not see, the foundation. And so what's the difference between building your house on a rock and building your house on sand? Well, Jesus gave you the answer. You hear my words and you do them. If you do them, you're building on rock. If you hear my words and don't do them, you're building on sand. Look, that means everybody sitting in church is hearing this message today. But not everybody in this room necessarily will do what they've learned today. And if that's you, you're building on sand. And when troubles come, and they will come like they do for all of us, your house will fall, and you will fall, and great will be your fall. You don't want to stand before Christ on Judgment Day and hear Him say, I never knew you, even though you attended church faithfully your whole life. <laughs> even though you heard sermon after sermon after sermon. You can hear a million messages and bust hell wide open. It's about doing what you hear. Amen? And that comes after you come to know Christ personally by Savior. And that's through faith, not by doing. Your salvation comes by receiving Christ. And then you allow the Spirit to teach you day after day after day. Verse 28, And when, the, they, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He had authority. What authority? From the Father. C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, it's interesting to me, when Jesus gave this, and they said, oh, He speaks like a man with authority. Did that crowd follow Him? No, they did not. They liked what He said. They heard Him. They didn't do it. And C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, gives this answer as to why they didn't follow Jesus. He said, when I was a child, I often had toothaches, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something uh, which would deaden the pain for that night and let me get to sleep. That sounds like a good thing to me. But I did not go to my mother, at least not till the pain became very bad. And here's why. The reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the, the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. <laughs> I'd rather live with the pain. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling around in my mouth with all, with all my teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. And they would, not let, they would not let sleeping dogs lie. Church, let's be disciples of Christ who say, Lord, we have a toothache. So come, Lord, and start drilling. And clean up my mouth so that I go forward a different person. Sleeping dogs notwithstanding, Father, do whatever it takes to make me right. Lord, we just thank you this morning for your word, and we thank you for how you're able to take 
theological truth and make it so practical that we can live by, live by it. Thank you for teaching us today about our relationships with people. So many times the things we do, we do with a wrong heart in relationship to others. Father, I pray that we would confess that as sin. We'd get right with you, and then we would go get right with the other person. We would find restoration and, re and reconciliation. And Lord, may we today remember that the, the, the calm water, the easy, wide way is never really easy, and it leads to destruction. And that the narrow way, while it is hard, it gives us understanding to life, and it leads to eternity. So we thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite the prayer team to come up, if they would, and then those of you who are here, who today you sense the Holy Spirit leading you to respond to, to, to this message and to receive Jesus as your Savior by faith, I want you to be able to come up and, and share that with someone. You're not saved because they pray for you, you're saved because you recognize Jesus is God and you confess your sin to him. You can be saved in your car. You can be saved sitting where you are right now. But come up and tell somebody about it because as a church, we want to follow up with you. We want to care for you and love you. So thank you for being here today. If you have a, any request of prayer for any reason whatsoever, our team is here to pray with you. They'll spread out so they're not too close to each other. And that way you're able to have privacy and you can talk and pray and know that someone is agreeing in prayer with you, okay? Because we all face issues from day to day. God bless you, church. God is so good to us. Let's respond to him now and, and also have fellowship uh, from a distance. You know, be cautious. If you see somebody with a mask on, then keep your distance, okay? But let's love one another. God bless each of you.